0: Micah chapter 6. Now, Micah is a minor prophet, which means he's very hard to find. Um, you'll find this near the end of the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It's about six books back from the very end of uh, the text. Uh, and we're going to focus uh, our, our thoughts throughout this missions month on verse 8 of this text. But I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1 of Micah chapter 6 through to the end of verse Eight. And what's happening here is that the Lord is indicting. He is bringing a lawsuit against the people of Israel. So let's give attention to this section of His word. Hear what the Lord says Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and by myself before God and high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you O man what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing passage where you lay out your righteous complaint against your people. Calling the very mountains and hills as your witnesses, you describe how you have redeemed us. Your people of old from the land of Egypt, us from the bondage of slavery to sin. And then how you have dealt with us, protecting us on every side, being kind to us on every side. Lord, all of us have things in our lives that we can remember and look back on and, and, and give you praise. And how should we respond, Lord, to you and your goodness? Not with empty worship, Lord. That's not your desire. You have told us what is good, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly. Would you use These next few weeks, beginning right now, to work this spirit in our hearts and in our souls so that we both individually and we as a a church would walk in that way in response to your grace. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. amen. So any parent will tell you that there are various things that you never need to teach your kids to say. You never need to teach your kids to say, no. Right? You never need to teach them to say, mine. And then a little later, you'd never need to teach them to say, that's not fair. It seems like ever since we were we, we've had an innate sense of justice. Unfortunately, as we grow old, that sense of justice is sometimes dulls. Not because we don't care, but because life gets busy. Not because we're not passionate, but because we just lose perspective. And that's why we're focusing on justice this year. We're going to spend the next three weeks as part of our missions emphasis looking at this theme. And I encourage you to look at the back of your worship guide to see all of the events that we have planned. As a church family, we're going to lean in and talk about some hard, perhaps some uncomfortable questions, some uncomfortable issues. And if you're new with us, you should know that's the kind of church that we are. That's the kind of family that we are. There aren't things in this church that you sort of aren't allowed to talk about. We're a family that throws all that mess out there and then figures it out together. And I'm looking forward over the next month or so to growing with you as we look at some of these themes. Well, my assignment this morning is to kick us off on our mission's emphasis and this emphasis on justice by providing the biblical basis of justice. Justice. When we talk about justice, what are we talking about? And why do we care about it? Why are you going to be glad that you came here this morning? Why should you come back next week? What are we doing this emphasis for? What is this all about? We want to focus on that together this morning. And I'm going to do my best by answering two questions from the biblical perspective. First, what is justice? What are we talking about? Secondly, why should we care about it? Why should we seek for justice to have a bigger place in our hearts and in our lives. What is justice? Why do we care about it? Let's start by asking this question, what is justice? Now of course we come to the Bible to get our definition and in a sense it's quite easy to do so because the Bible has a huge amount to say about justice. Over 2,000 verses address the topic of justice explicitly. That's an incredibly high number. That's more than the Bible has to say about heaven, prayer, and sex combined. The Bible has a lot to say about this topic. And when we come to it, we see that at its very simplest level, justice can be described as setting things right. Setting things right right something is wrong something is not as it should be and justice is served when shalom is restored when wholeness comes when things are returned to how they should be now in the bible this process of setting things right has at least two different parts to it two different emphases if you like First, in the Bible, when it comes to setting things right, it's clear that justice does involve retribution. It does involve punishment for wrongdoing. So consider 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you retribution, punishment, and perhaps, perhaps for us, that's the idea that most naturally comes to mind when we think of, of justice. We think of punishment playing out in courtrooms or the criminal justice system. We think of this this uh, negative side, so to speak, of justice. And the Bible's idea of justice certainly involves that. But secondly, the Bible actually talks more about a different side of justice. The Bible actually has more to say about setting things right, not through retribution, but through restoration. Restoration, providing people with the rights that they inherently have as image bearers of the living God. And when the Bible talks about justice, most often it's not talking about punishment for wrongdoing. Most often it's talking about restoration, providing people with their rights. This is why justice is so often in the Scriptures associated with the vulnerable, with the widow, with the orphan, with the immigrant, with the poor. Why? Because they're the ones who have most often been denied their rights as image bearers of God. So consider Zechariah 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Or consider this one from, from Ezekiel. Ezekiel eighteen five. If a man is righteous... And does what is just and right. So if a man is righteous, and if he does what's just and right, what what does he do? Well, the text answers, he gives his bread to the hungry, and he covers the naked with a garment. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say, if a man is just, he goes around meeting out punishment when people have done wrong. Okay, That's not to deny that's part of the Bible's picture. The emphasis, though, in the Scriptures is on restoration. If a man is just, what does he do? He gives bread to the hungry. He covers the naked. Now, this combination of these two two emphases, this combination of retribution and restoration, this combination of punishment and provision can be brought together and has been brought together by one scholar to define justice this way. He says, justice is giving people what they are due. Whether punishment or protection or care justice setting things right is giving people what they are due perhaps that is punishment but perhaps that is protection or care in our world this could mean punishment prosecuting say a man who has sexually abused a woman or it could mean provision providing for a single mum kids standing up for a, a, a you know a classmate who's being bullied. Supporting, perhaps, a non-profit that seeks to provide for the needs of poor immigrants. What is justice? Setting things right. Setting things right. Giving people what they're due, whether that's punishment or protection or care. So, if that's what justice is, uh, let's talk about why we care about it. Why, why do we care about justice? Now, perhaps that seems like an odd question because naturally, like, I doubt if I asked any of you, who, you know, who doesn't care about justice, right? And, you know, like, of course, we all care about about justice, but perhaps often in a bit of a vague way, you know, we are, we are for justice, but kind of in the same way that we are, like, for parades or for Labor Day, you know? It's like, I like them, but I have no idea what they're actually about, you know? Um... And that's kind of the danger of having a vague sense of of why justice is important. And my hope is that by answering this question more robustly, why do we care about justice, that it actually might start to take hold in my life, actually might start to take hold in your life, that we actually might become a people who live and breathe the importance of justice. So I have three biblical reasons that I hope will compel us to to care about justice. First reason we care about justice is simply this friends when we miss justice setting things right when we miss justice we miss the heart of god when we miss justice we miss the heart of god when god created this world nothing was wrong and everything was set at right and no husband ever beat his wife and no friend ever lied to their community, and you know, no um, worker ever stole from their office. It was a time and place in which all children had parents, and every parent had a home, and everyone had enough food. There was shalom; all things were at uh, right. God called it good. God called it very good. So imagine His heartbreak. When sin enters the world, and with sin, injustice. Injustice is not part of God's plan for his world. And he hates injustice. Isaiah 61 verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And our God is compassionately concerned about the vulnerable. Listen to Deuteronomy 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow And loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God is the God who did not create injustice and who now aligns himself with the vulnerable, even introduces himself as the supporter of their cause. Now, isn't that an interesting thing, that God would introduce himself that way? Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, we have copies of it out uh, in our book nook if you want to pick one up, Um, highlights how, how striking it is that God would introduce himself this way. Think about it, you know, um, when I go and speak somewhere and they say, oh, how do you want to be introduced? I say, well, tell them this is James Forsyth, he's the senior pastor at McLean Presbyterian. I'm uh, lots of other things in life too, but that's sort of my main role in, in public life. So isn't it significant that God would say to the Bible writers, hey, see when you introduce me, introduce me. As the father of the fatherless, introduce me as a defender of the widows. I know I'm lots of things, but this is one of the main things that I'm about. So, Psalm 68, verse four and five: Introduce me as the father of the fatherless, a defender of. The widows. This is one of the main things that I am doing in this world. I identify myself with the powerless, with the vulnerable, and I am coming alongside of them because this is not how I intended my world to be. It's profound that God would introduce himself that way. Mark Labberton, who's the president at Fuller Theological Seminary, wrote... We should not fool ourselves into thinking that it is enough to feel drawn to the heart of God without our lives showing the heart of God. Without our lives showing the heart of God. When we miss justice, we miss the heart of God. We care about justice because God cares about justice. So that's the first reason. Why do we care about it? Because God cares about it. But let's look at a second reason. Now we care about justice not only because when we miss justice we miss the heart of God, but also because, secondly, when we miss justice, we also miss the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. Now, perhaps some in the church might feel wary, might even feel suspicious when we talk about justice being central to the life of faith. And there is some merit behind that concern. As we look back on the 20th century, there was an emergence in liberal churches that became known as the social gospel, and what happened here was that an emphasis upon justice or good deeds really displaced Christ from being the center of our faith. So what mattered most was no longer what Jesus has done for us, but what we do for our neighbor. This, of course, is just another form of legalism whereby our standing before God is dependent upon what we do, not upon what he has done for us. And so, of course, we want to be careful to not make that mistake. However, we also want to be careful, more careful, to ensure that while we're aware of those concerns, we don't let the pendulum so swing that we end up Losing the Bible's emphasis on the importance of justice. In fact, I would argue this morning that keeping Christ, keeping the cross at the very center of our faith actually serves to deepen our passion for justice. If you understand Christ, if you understand the cross as the very central of Christianity, then you will have a, a deeper passion for justice. How is this so? Well, of course, when we think about Christ, it is right to celebrate him as the bringer of forgiveness, as the bringer of grace. We celebrate Jesus this morning as the bringer of forgiveness, as the bringer of grace, but we don't forget that he brings these gifts to us by and through an act of justice. We receive grace because he received justice. On the cross, Christ takes the punishment, the retribution that our sins deserve. The grace we receive as believers is not that justice is no longer required, as if God just kind of blithely and magics our our sin away. No, the grace we receive as believers is that justice has been fully satisfied by another in our place. That Christ has taken upon himself the punishment for all of our wrongdoing, so that we might go free. And when you understand this gospel, it necessarily leads to a passion for justice. Do you understand this morning? In the gospel, God offers to meet all of your needs. And the price is free. And when you understand that God has met all of your needs it naturally gives you a passion to meet the needs of others. Nothing reveals more about your heart for Christ, whom you have not seen, as much as your heart for those people who you do see right now. Whatever you do for them, Christ says, you do for him. And people who have received such grace naturally extend it to others. When we miss justice, we miss the heart of God. But when we miss justice, we also miss the heart of the gospel. We care about justice because the gospel saves us through justice. Third, finally for this morning, why do we care about justice? Because of the heart of God, because of the heart of the gospel. And thirdly, because when we miss justice, we also miss the heart of the church. The heart of the church, God, the gospel, and the church. Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar at the University of Edinburgh, the greatest intellectual institution in the history of the world. Um, and uh, I just read a book of his a really helpful book uh, that he wrote called Destroyer of the Gods. Destroyer of the Gods. And in this book, he talks about how unique how unusual, even how bizarre, early Christians appeared to the world in which they lived right after Jesus' resurrection. See, in our culture, we have kind of categories and a mindset that's largely framed by Judeo-Christian values, and so we perhaps miss how bizarre Christians were in their culture originally. Part of their distinctiveness, of course, came from their beliefs, For example, it made no sense to the world around that Christians refused to worship the pantheon of gods that were so worshipped in the Roman world. In fact, their refusal to be polytheistic led an accusation to be levied against Christians that they were, in fact, atheistic. Early Christians were called atheists because they only believed in one God. More than that, Christians were also ridiculed, thought naive thought, daft thought, silly, because not only did they believe in one God, but they believed in a God who not just cared about, but even loved ordinary people. A God who didn't require things from you, but gave things to you. That made no sense in the early Roman world. Their beliefs certainly made them distinctive. But here's the powerful thing about this book, and for our purposes this morning. More than for their beliefs, early Christians were also distinguished by their practices by the way in which they lived their lives. Early Christians stuck out, seemed different, we would say shone in that culture, because the way they lived their lives was so different to how the world around was living there. So for example, it seemed bizarre in that context that Christians would embrace different races and different ethnicities as brothers and sisters in the faith. That didn't make sense. Or another example, in in a day, in an age where it was commonly practiced that if you had a child that you didn't want, which often meant that she was a girl, you would simply throw her upon the trash heap and leave them there to die. And it didn't make sense the early world that, do you know what Christians did? They went around and they collected these kids. Not to then sell them as slaves, which sometimes happened, but to raise them as their own. Or another example, in a day and age where it was common, whether you were married or single, to have multiple sexual partners and certainly to sleep with prostitutes, the sexual purity of believers was just confounding to the world around. Or one last example, in their hierarchical and segmented society, it didn't make sense to uh, the, the, the world looking on that Christians gave such honor to men and women on equal standing to children and to parents, to masters and to slaves. You understand what I'm getting at from these points? That these social behaviors, the social behavior of Christians, racial reconciliation, the sanctity of life, sexual ethics, the dignity of all people, these social behaviors were profoundly counter-cultural. It was the Christians' embodiment of justice that made them so strange to the world around That made them so strange to the world around since its inception, justice has been at the heart of the church. It's how we become Christ's body here on earth. Yes, we are the church gathered right now, Christ's body meeting as one. But from here we go to be the church scattered. We go to be salt and light in this world. We end every service with a song of sending saying, okay, this has been sweet now go. You can't stay here all day. Go. Be gone. Why? Because there's a world that's in need of salt. There's a world that's in need of light. Now, don't go without the benediction. Don't go without a blessing. Don't go without the assurance that he is going to be with you as you go. But believers, we are a witness to this world, not as we sit here right now, but as we leave from here to be his hands and feet, doing justice on his earth. We care about justice because the church was made for justice. So, what is justice? Setting things right. Giving people what they're due. Punishment, protection, or care. Why did we care about it? Because it's at the heart of God. At the heart of our gospel and at the heart of the church. Now, all of this combines, does it not? To give us opportunity opportunity. Why? The opportunity to move out into our world and set things right. To show our world what our God, what our gospel, what our church really looks like. Did you know 1.6 billion, billion with a B, I don't really know how big that number is. You know, that's a huge number. 1.6 billion people in the world today, men, women, and children, lack the financial resources even to have enough food and water. Did you know that we are right now in our age of advancement and, you know, all things good, we are right now in the midst of the biggest refugee crisis in history. There's never been a time in the history of the world when there's been more displaced people. Some 60 million people who are currently displaced from their homes, 20 million of whom are even displaced from their very nation. Did you know this? The estimated annual profit from the human trafficking industry is bigger than the annual profits of Microsoft, Apple, Samsung, BP, and Exxon combined. Combined. How big an industry is the human trafficking industry? Bigger than the five biggest companies you can think of. Or let's go, uh, let's go more local. You know, numbers that begin with B, it can be hard to get our head around. Uh, Fairfax County, the county that we're in right now, perennially one of the richest counties in the entire nation, therefore one of the richest counties in the entire world. You know, 60,000 people, 60,000 men, women, and children live below the poverty line in our county. Did you know that there are 3,000 homeless people in our county? 3,000 homeless in this weather. There are 600 kids waiting for a family to foster or adopt them. And we think of these needs, we remember that all these needs are people. All these numbers have a face. Every statistic tells a story. And wouldn't it be powerful? Wouldn't it be great if we loved them all so well that the world thought we were weird? Right, If, if, if people said... Hey, see these Christians, I don't really understand all that they believe. I can't really get my head around all this stuff, but you know what? Because of them, because of the church, there are zero kids in our county waiting to be fostered or adopted, and that's quite something. Wouldn't it be profound if we were to have that kind of impact? If Christians, if we were to distinguish ourselves in this world so that our reputation would not be based on hypocrisy or on being judgmental or please God on our political beliefs, but would be based instead upon our love so that this city would weep if our church were to disappear. That's the call of God, that's the opportunity that we have, and friends, that's what we're going to consider this month. This morning, we reflected upon what justice is, we reflected upon why it matters, and over the next few weeks, we'll begin to talk about, well, how can we make a difference? How can we go about making a difference? Friends, this month, we won't need to teach our kids to cry out for justice but maybe we'll all grow a little younger to be as passionate and as wise as they. Let's pray. Father, what is justice? It's setting things right. It's seeing your kingdom come here on earth. And that's what you invite us to. To reveal your heart, the heart of the gospel, and the heart of your design for the church to the world around by living lives of radical love. I really do ask, Lord, that uh, over these next few weeks, you would uh, help us to wrestle with these concepts, wrestle with these ideas in a way that actually boils down to life change, that we would find that we... um, do start to have not just new passions, but new practices uh, that this church might seem weird to the world around. Not for weirdness sake, Lord, but for your glory. Would people look at us and not be able to understand and yet at the same time find that that draws them closer to you? So be at work, Lord, in us, be at work through us, We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name, amen.